Permaculture is a pattern-based approach for finding the small changes that create systemic transformation. Greetings and welcome back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. I'm your host, Dan Palmer, and this is episode number 12. Today I share a fantastically rich conversation with my friend and colleague Joel Glansberg who's based in New Mexico, United States. For many decades through outlets such as uh, his work with Tracking, his organisation Pat and Mind uh, and Regenesis Group that Joel is a principal of and in. Joel has been to me an inspiration uh, and and someone who is on the cutting edge of, of permaculture's evolution as a as a deep and life-affirming and oriented uh, design approach. We cover all sorts of wonderful topics, and there's so many nuggets of wisdom in what Joel shares with us. So I trust you'll enjoy as much as I did, and I'll check in with you again at the end. So I'm very excited this morning to be in conversation with Joel Glansberg, who I had the honor of meeting a couple of years back when he was in New Zealand. Um, and I attended a wonderful workshop on the on many things. It was ostensibly on the on the subject of tracking we even learned how to light a fire with sticks but since then we've been in touch and I've been deeply excited to hear about uh, and learn, learn about the work that you've been doing through Regenesis and whatnot and just thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. All right well yeah it'd be great to get right into the topic of process and design and permaculture and maybe you could start by uh, sharing something of your relationship with permaculture your history, your history with permaculture you know and, yeah, sure. and some of the work you're doing these days yeah i'd be happy to so i grew up doing construction that's what my dad did and during college um was helping on a remodel project and a landscaper showed up and he began to fix all the damage we had wrought all around this house and i decided having spent most of my childhood in the woods, that's what I would really prefer to be doing, is to be healing things instead of trashing things. So I got a job with a local native plants company, Plants of Southwest, wonderful company, great catalog and, and the like, and started to learn about native plants. And at the time was kind of living in the hills and learned about permaculture on a big project we were doing in Colorado from my crew leader, Ben Haggard, who now is one of our partners in Regenesis. And he had Permaculture One. So that gives you an idea of how long ago this was. And I loved the idea of human beings providing for their needs in a way that was more like what we consider wild nature. And began to study and learn, and at the same time was working on a seed saving project at one of the Pueblos here that created the seed bank that became Seeds of Change seed company. And there were very few PDCs at that time in the States. And I went and took one at New Alchemy Institute with John Quinney, who's a, a Kiwi, and John Todd and Bill McClarney, who were the founders and a, a cast of thousands of wonderful experts. And then the following year was the International Convergence in Olympia, Washington in the States, where Fukuoka was and had the chance to spend a weekend with Bill Mollison. And I realized that I had gotten a lot of the pieces, but very little of what held it together. So I had learned a lot about greenhouses and bees and gardening and trees and aquaculture, but very little about what held those things together, their relationships, and even what I now see is what is core to permaculture. And so I ended up doing a drylands course with Bill that another current Regenesis partner, Tim Murphy, sponsored in Arizona in the later 80s. And came back and began to teach one-day classes, figuring out of that two weeks I could piece together a day. And it totally changed the way I saw. Everywhere I looked, I saw potential. I saw, oh, we could be growing tomatoes there, we could be catching that water, and we could be mm -hmm. reflecting that heat, and we could, and, and the like. And so founded a nonprofit flowering tree permaculture that still exists. It's uh, the longest lasting Native American based permaculture nonprofit that I'm aware of. Um, my ex-wife was from the Pueblo and that's where the project is. And you can see a little video of it 30 years on, on my website at uh, Pattern Mind. And it's called 30 Years Greening the Desert Flowering Tree. And it's also one of the primary 
examples in uh, Gaia's Garden by Toby Hemingway, because there weren't many examples back when Toby first wrote that book. Since then, Ben Haggard and Tim Murphy and I were doing all kinds of teaching and designing, and we found that we weren't being successful in the ways we wanted to be successful. People were second-guessing our designs. People were not implementing them. If they were implemented, they often got entirely changed or even bulldozed within a handful of years. So we met a couple of people that were doing organizational development work, Pamela and Bob Mang, and we formed Regenesis to change how the development industry functions because it's one of the most destructive things that we humans do to living communities, whether they're human communities or non-human communities. Mm-hmm. And our very simple thought was that if we simply, if we could simply understand the way the living places we were working worked, we could help them to be healthier instead of just cause less damage or even cause no damage. That we could actually see what their potential was like and help them to realize that through all this time and effort and energy we're putting into building human housing and agriculture and energy and the like. Wow, beautiful. Yeah, and I'm really keen to hear more about Regenesis because what I do know really deeply excites me in some ways in terms of being the sort of work that can support permaculture to express its its own potential. It sounds like a, basically a bunch of permaculture-inspired people got together with some people that were working in more of an organizational context. And, I, and from, the, from the beginning, that I love the sound of your aspiration around transforming the way the development industry works which would be great to get into as well because yeah. it's something I'm starting to dabble in as well as working in that sphere given that the, the nature of development is this enormous machine that is steamrolling the planet and unless some work is happening in that sphere, then uh, it's really hard to see things, things turning around. Yeah, and one of the things that Regenesis sprung from was that the Mangs were working on living systems thinking. So thinking and working like living systems do instead of mechanical systems. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years ago when I made this video, 30 years greening the desert, flowering tree, did the opening sequence, which is zooming in on Google Earth and you see the desert southwest and you get closer and closer and you see this little three-quarter acre green five-story closed canopy food forest. And at first I was very (laughs) self-congratulatory. Oh, great job. Very good. And then about halfway through the night, I realized that it was an isolated island was a track of my failure because I was not simply aiming to do a demonstration site. I was trying to change the way people saw the land, treated the land, lived with the land. And that if I had been successful at that, it would have disappeared like the first blades of grass in a meadow, that it would have just been swallowed up in a sea of food forest. And I realized that 30 years ago, it wasn't even in my consciousness to think about designing the process in a way that would help other people understand it, bring them into it, and have them see why they had an interest in this, how it would affect their lives in a positive way that I was so much caught on proving that all this permaculture stuff worked, that guilds worked, that water harvesting could grow a forest in the high desert. I was entirely unaware of the system I was really trying to change, which was largely in people's minds, mm-hmm. how they saw the world. And, you know, that's the headwaters of all human action. And, you know, we've got to start at the headwaters to have impacts downstream. So Regenesis has really opened my eyes to ways of working on that ecosystem of the human mind and our vision and our perspective. That is so much of what we work with at Regenesis is helping developers see in a different way, helping. We do very little design these days, little to none. And we act as resources to design teams to help upgrade their way of thinking and working on what design means and what you're designing for. And we're working very much on assembling community stakeholders so that it lasts far after the design project is done. And I thought I'd just mention quickly, just so for listeners that don't realize that you're speaking from New Mexico and that's where, where the 
the 30 years greeting the deserts happened and so on. And of course I'll have a link to video, that video on the, on the show notes. All right. So this, yeah, this is, this is getting me a little excited because on, on the one hand you've acknowledged that part of what you're doing is, is transforming the space between the ears um, or, or, or in the heart and the heart. Yeah. The whole body. Depends mind. where you think the mind is. Yeah, totally. Totally. From a mechanical approach to things to a living systems approach. And maybe that move itself involves moving from just the mind into bringing, bringing the heart and gut into the picture. But, but then you're talking about to do that, you're deepening process understandings and you're saying these days, yeah, you're more catalyzing or facilitating the ability of existing design teams to move from more mechanical to more life oriented approaches, but which itself is quite a, quite a big deal because of course these mechanical orientations are sometimes I talk about them almost being in our bloodstream. You know, we've been socialized into the, and our whole world is built around these systems. So it's no small thing to, to go deep enough in rooting out or, or getting into the ballpark of rooting out some of these ideas as, as we, as we move in to, towards life. But you're, you're saying that you're doing that in a way that we're, you're able to make it accessible. So, you know, it's deep work, but you're making it accessible. And I'd love to hear more about how that works, right? Cause that's a hell of a challenge. Yeah, that's a great question. And I actually have kind of a third thing I do. The, there's the permaculture and there's the systems thinking work, living systems thinking work with Regenesis. And the third leg of what I work on is tracking or nature awareness, like that pattern mind course we were doing in New Zealand together. Because for me, that's really in the body. Mm-hmm. And if we can experience these living systems thinking frameworks in our bodies, see them at work in the manifest living world, it's another way to hold on to them, right? And for me, triangulation is always useful. So there's the, the systems thinking and the pattern design, which is how I see permaculture these days, and that way of seeing the patterns of a living world instead of the stuff of a living world. So one of the main things I've been on about recently is that, yeah, this mechanical, physical view of the world has colonized our minds, that our minds are very much oriented and organized and everything else by seeing the stuff of the world. We look around and we see a house and a window and a tree and a car and a plant and a swale, and that's then what we design Mm -hmm. as things Mm -hmm. or an assemblage of things. Mm. Instead of seeing that, no, the reason we start out with site analysis is to see what are all the patterns of flows, how do they interact, how do they then manifest as a tree or a hill or a stream or a marsh or a bug, and how would we alter those existing patterns of flows so they had different manifestations. And for me, that's what the least change for the greatest effect and stacking functions and all those Mollisonian principles are really aimed at is getting us to change our minds, right? The problem is the solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've got to think differently. And that's how you find that least change for the greatest effect. And for me, it's like an inoculation. What's that acupuncture point? What's the yeast? What's the, the little thing that changes the underlying pattern and inspirits the whole so you get a very different, more nutritious, more long-lasting, more delicious um, manifestation. Mm-hmm. Beautiful metaphor. I was imagining your work is like the starter that turns some bland factory-produced milk into something a lot more probiotic and biologically alive. What that really great to hear. This has been a real topic that I've explored in the first of these the two inquiries that I've been looking into and making permaculture stronger. And the first one kind of starts with this question, you know, why, why do, why do so many permaculture design systems feel like assemblages of things? Um, <laughs> and, the, and of course the answer to that question is because that's exactly what they are because yeah. um, the design processes we've been taught and we've unwittingly brought in from landscape architecture and engineering and wherever else they were, they had their origins in things and in, in making machines and factories work better. And so what would it mean yeah, to, to loosen that attachment to what are the things, what are the parts, what are the elements and how do we acknowledging that the world is broken? Of course, the answer seems to be, well, we need to click or join the things back together. But what would it mean to move into the space you're alluding to where we start by immersing in the, the patterns and the flows and finding those 
those acupuncture or nodal intervention points where we can f- kind of flip or support the system to to move into a different space, which of course involves different things showing up and manifesting, but um, the focus is totally different. This, this has been a, a, a big thing I've taken on from Christopher Alexander too, where mm-hmm. if we're focused on the things, the space between the things and the shape of the whole is kind of an accidental byproduct of, you know, of, mm-hmm. of our attempts to join things together when it's, it's, it's that, those, that shape and the, those spaces and the way it all flows that really determines the quality of the outcome. Sure. Well, from just a permaculture perspective, I've always thought that if one did a site analysis well, it gave you the design. Yes. It told you where everything should be. This kind of sustainable design, even what's becoming called regenerative design, is again, really, what are all the techniques and technologies you could stick together to make something like a spaceship, right? Mm -hmm. And even when I was a kid, when we were in school, we had this exercise to teach us about the living world, which was you're on a spaceship and you've got this much food and this much water. And how are you going to figure out how to live off of that for however long you need to live? And the irony of that is that the living planet works nothing like that, that it's not the amount of a resource. It's how quickly it moves through the system or how many times it's cycled. Right. Mm -hmm. And that, that's why we should be focusing on cycling, even with carbon or any of these other things. And everything is entropic. It's mm-hmm. falling apart from the moment it's finished. Whereas there's a great little book by a physicist, Schrodinger, people mostly know about his cat, called <laughs> What is Life? And he defines the term negentropy or negative entropy because of the fish swimming back upstream, carrying all those resources back to the upper watersheds and trees growing up and grass growing up and animals pooping higher than where they, they grazed. And uh, for me, that's one of those, those things we don't see, right? Is that no matter how cool it is, anything we build is gonna fall apart and take resources. And anything we grow transforms resources or cycles them so that makes functionally more of them. I want to tell a little story. It was very, taught me a lot. When my oldest son was, I don't know, a year old or so, I was holding him while he slept. And having made things most of my life, I was thinking, how would I make his beautiful body? And of course, I'd frame him up, put all his bones together, attach him with tendons and ligaments and muscles, and then run his arteries and veins and run his nerves and Um, install all his organs and sheathe them with skin and fill them with blood and some water and some food and (laughs) start them up. (laughs) And it made me realize that, of course, he was made nothing like that. Mm. And nothing alive was made like that. But that is how I and we think about designing and making everything we make, whether it's a garden or a landscape or a community. And what we ignore is that it's been here already, right? Mm. This piece of the living earth was here long before we decided to put a garden here or a farm here or a community here or, or whatever else. And our bodies, the bodies of the river, the river was formed by the water flowing. Nobody dug the water and then turned on the tap, eh? And the same thing with our bodies, that they were made by carrying out the processes that the structure was made to carry out. And so how do we think about design in that way? so that we begin with the process and we design the process in a way so that it it creates the structures that are needed. Mm -hmm. That's what a tree is doing. Yeah, it's it's photosynthesizing and carrying water up into seed the clouds and it's taking that atmospheric carbon as it photosynthesizes and builds its body layer upon layer upon layer. And nobody built the tree and then turned it on. Mm -hmm. And that, that was such an insight for me was a huge track of how mechanically I think and see the world. Oh, it's so beautiful to hear. Yeah, and really resonates with a lot of journeying I've been doing. Um, a lot of it largely prompted by the work of Christopher Alexander, who, who gets that same point across that, I mean, you know, because we, we appreciate that we want interconnected systems. Um, and, and then the question is, well, how do we create interconnection? How do we create connection? And, and that implies, oh, well, you need some things to connect. And so this assemblage <laughs> mentality is so deep, you know, okay, so we need to find the, find the things, the elements, and then bring them together. When of course, yeah, that's not how we came into being and not or a tree or a flower or a star or a starfish came into being. There was, there was this whole 
this, this already existing hole in process. Another physicist I've been reading, David Bohm, he talks about the fundamental reality is undivided wholeness and flowing movement. And like you said, there's already a history. It's an ongoing conversation, ongoing progress. A process but like within the acorn that becomes the oak tree it's already a whole it already has parts and then through this um, unfolding process it, it expresses its potential and, and hearing you speak you there's a second inquiry making permaculture stronger is looking at this issue of oh well first of all you do your design like what you're saying you, know, you find the parts and you join them together into a master plan or a blueprint and then you hit the go button then you start your sun up or then you implement the design so these, these two really core ideas that are that, that are not, not easily removed from our, our bloodstream, our body, mind, and, and the way we approach things, that they're really inconsistent with how the rest of life works. What, one, one phrase I've been throwing around is this idea of, and it sounds very much like the game you're in, this idea of facilitating a design process transfusion, <laughs> mm. um, where those two things are really core cool parts of it, moving away from assembly to unfolding and moving away from you build the thing first and then then it happens as opposed to it. The thing that this, the most beautiful solution or structure unfolds out of the, the process. The river defines itself as it grows rather than us digging it first. Yeah. And David Bohm um, does speak about this beautifully and the idea of unfolding and infolding. And you can see that in the way a flower unfolds or anything else alive unfolds. And I think a big piece of this different way of seeing I've realized in myself is that we have this idea in the environmental movement that we've been spreading around for decades, which is that human beings are destructive of living systems by nature. And the best we can do is try to control ourselves or try to do a better job. And one of the great gifts I've had of working with indigenous people throughout this continent is the view that, no, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't a reason for us to be here for life. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a question of that we're bad or evil, or I've, I've repeatedly had young students say, oh, well, I should just kill myself. Yeah. That's the best thing I could do for the planet. And it's certainly the last thing I want anyone thinking, particularly a young person. And um, it, it's almost like we've become Calvinists, that we're, we're so judgmental and so rigid. Um, instead of saying, no, we just have lost sight of our original instructions. We've forgotten what we're here for, what we're meant to be doing. And there's incredibly powerful work from around the world. There's a wonderful book from California by a woman, M. Cat Anderson, called Tending the Wild, where she talks about how the native Californians, through burning and digging and flooding and other practices that were ecological disturbances, um, provided for their food and fuel and fiber in a way that increased species diversity and nutrient and hydrological cycling. Mm -hmm. So the presence of human beings actually is what created the diversity that so amazed Europeans when they came to this continent. And um, similar things from where you are in Australia and all around the world that what our ancestors on every continent were doing at one point was looking for that least change for the greatest effect that would take out the climax species and encourage the subclimax species, which are almost always much more species diverse than those climax species mm -hmm. and the ash buffering the pH of the soils and the, the charcoal adding carbon to the soil and the pH buffering of the waters where the shellfish are trying to grow. I, I even remember Mollison in a little aside saying there was some thinking that the great central desert of Australia was created by fires, Aboriginal fires that got out of hand because all around the coasts had been so wet that they just weren't experienced with what happened when they began to burn some of the interior regions. Mm -hmm. So for me, just that, if I start from, we're here for a reason, we've got to figure out our role and how to play that role, it's a very different design question than we are the problem, right? If we're the problem, we're the solution, right? Mm -hmm. um, instead of that, we're the bad part that needs to be replaced or reformed or kicked out. Mm -hmm. no, it's, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, I 
resonates with stuff I've read. Is I think Martin, Martin Prechtel, he, um, I'm not from saying that right, but he's written some lovely books about his time with the Mayan people in South America and, and also what, what I've learned of the Aboriginal people here in Australia, that the, other, the obligation or the responsibility, of the, or in a sense, the point of life was to help life as a whole become more beautiful to the point where I've read of Aboriginal Australians who couldn't stop they use the fire stick, you know, controlled burns as a as a key part of their of stewarding or, or managing the landscape, and they couldn't stop doing it even when their lives were at risk because the smoke gave them away, and at, at a point where they were being um, shot um, because to to live was was to was to make the place more beautiful. Yeah, well, that's that's great, and I, I, I mean, one thing I've just a friend was telling me about the other day, and I followed up on. Was was another direction some of their energy is going? You know, we're a, scour- we're a scourge on the planet. We're inherently bad for the planet. This technological narrative that I I, I I didn't take seriously at first, but I realised how many people are taking it seriously. Like the Elon the, the Elon Musk kind of line, which is like, okay, so we're going to colonise other planets. You know, like he's talking seriously about having intergalactic intergalactic kind of colonies of of sustainable human civilizations on on other planets. Which, um, yeah, I'm sure we can agree. Is, it just sounds like an unbelievable delusion, as opposed to the. <laughs> the I know that seems to be the blindingly more exciting and obvious pathway of saying, "Well, let's just get better at becoming who we are," which is a part of this the system right here. Yeah, there's uh, Martin Bechtel lives just down the road from me, a couple oh. an hour forty five minutes. And there's a great story he tells about housing design among the Mayan and how the houses were made to fall apart. Right. So that it required the extended family coming to de- together on a regular basis to rebuild the houses mm-hmm. so that the house design was an instrument for community cohesion and the transfer of information from generation to generation. And that when the cinder block and the locking steel door and steel roof came in, it cut that out as well as it enabled people to assemble riches, right? They could lock all their stuff up. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a bark house, anybody can come right through your wall. Yeah. And there's, you know, what you're saying is if we believe the story that we're a scourge on the planet, we don't have a choice but to destroy it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's just the logical conclusion of that premise. And I was hearing an interview with Oren Lyons, who's a uh, Iroquois Haudenosaunee runner, he calls himself. And he was talking about how in their communities, there's a principle called one bowl, one spoon, which is everyone shares, everyone eats from the same bowl. Mm -hmm. And he said, whereas Western society is all about, I want to hoard as much as I possibly can for myself and be a millionaire. Mm -hmm. And both of those premises have predictable results, right? And so it's, again, how do we get to the headwaters? How do we see the world in a different way so that we see, oh, I'm not designing a house so it will be long-lasting and need little maintenance. I'm designing an instrument for community cohesion, Mm -hmm. right? And how do we see anything we're designing as enabling or disenabling community cohesion and health and even the realization of potential because Mm. that's what it's really about. It's not just about how much money can we make off of this. And a lot of the pushback I've gotten from permies when I've tried to talk about us working on large system change Mm -hmm. instead of designing stuff is consciously or unconsciously, they know they can make a living designing stuff and building stuff and implementing stuff, whether it's a straw bale house or a greenhouse or an aquaculture system or a water harvest system or whatever else, that that is the niche we've been able to make for ourselves in society that we can use to feed our families. And it's another way that we end up letting ourselves be controlled by the over society, the over culture is by falling into that financial trap mm-hmm. and not being creative enough to think about, well, okay, 
how would we change that? How would we actually work on that? How would we work on thinking? There's a, um, a wonderful interview with Mary Catherine Bateson, who's the daughter of Gregory Bateson and Margaret Mead, famous anthropologist. And she's talking about cybernetics, you know, systems thinking, computer stuff. And she says, the tragedy of cybernetics is that we move to the side of making gadgets we could sell instead of continuing to think about thinking. Yep. And we, it doesn't take, you just have to look around to see that. Yeah. That's uh, yeah, great. It's great, great stuff. Great topics. I'm enjoying this conversation. I must say, yeah, that, that's, that's something I deal with a lot is, is, you know, I'm, I'm kind of exploring this sort of design process transfusion stuff or, or, what would it mean to, to question some of these ideas that we seem to be unwittingly perpetuating? And that's an often, you know, the same kind of pushback is like, yeah, that's, that's great, Dan, but how do you make a living out of this? Because people expect master plans where they tell me what they want. And I, I join all these, I assemble all the things they want into these, um, into these plans. And then, you know, which effectively is my, my concern often is that we're, we're doing the same, more or less the same stuff under a different banner. Um, as opposed to what would it mean to move into more of a design process facilitation space where at the end of the day, like you said at the beginning, when you walk away, you've helped um, support the germination of a kind of new way of being with the land and, and, and with, with each other, which is a lot less tangible, a lot kind of more difficult. And yet as Regenesis's success in, in, in my own tiny experimental way, you know, my own personal livelihood experiments are going. It's not that it's impossible. It's just kind of hard, but hey, come on, you know, <laughs> like it's a challenge. In some ways, it's a challenge for a lifetime where, wow, yeah, you don't have to forego making a living, but you can, in the way you make a living, as well as in the things you're, you're getting paid for, you can be helping with these kind of transformations. I want to, I had to, want to tell you a little story about Ethiopia where I met my wife and I went over there to run a couple of permaculture design courses with Rosemary Murray years ago. When you said one spoon, one bowl, they, over there they didn't have, there was no spoon. It was just one plate, you know, and everyone's eating from the same plate. But one of the villages we, we visited in the, the um, highlands of the Rift Valley in southern Ethiopia, what happened was when a couple met, the village came together and built them a house and the structural poles were bamboo and it was a really high house, kind of a dome shape. And then with the termites and whatever else, the, the bases of the poles would um, start decomposing. So each year or two, they would just chop half a meter off or whatever it was. And so the, as the years went by, the house got shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter to the point where you couldn't stand up anymore. And then they'd, they'd repeat it where, like you were saying, the point wasn't so much, well, in addition to being about uh, a structure that provided shelter, it was very much a tool for community cohesion and something that gave that culture its unique character. Brilliant. Mm. Yeah. The living world is very insecure and it's why everything tries to flatten the ups and downs of everything. Right? Yeah. Trees are trying to keep it from getting too cold and too warm and our fur and you know, everything is trying to flatten the extremes. But if you flatten the extremes entirely, there's no movement and there's no longer any exchange and there's no longer any life. And that, Safety, you know, we hear that refrain over and over and over that we're aiming for this kind of safety. And in the tracking work, there's this walk we do, of the fox walk or the tracking, stalking, where you lift your foot and you feel the ground in front of you. And then you roll your foot over and place your heel down and then you shift your weight. And you do that with each step, whereas typically the way we humans walk is we lean forward and we catch ourselves with our heel repeatedly. It's a super efficient way of walking, but it's hard to do on uneven ground. It's hard to do without staring at the ground. It's one reason we flatten and pave everything. And I think that the same thing is true in our minds, is that if we can keep that springiness and that tension and that ability to balance and rebalance and recalibrate. Um, we have to be present in the moment and we have to be holistically aware instead of in a very narrow range that we're used to. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing that I learned from the tracking from my teacher, John Stokes at the tracking project is that I had always thought if you were going to be 
aware, very aware, you would have to be hypervigilant. It would be something like PTSD. And that that's not at all what our human awareness is made for. We're made to be able to be softly, spherically, holistically aware and sensitive, just like a deer or a bear or a bunny rabbit. And for me, so much of what's important about this work is us remembering who we are as human beings and enjoying being whole human beings. I just did a, a class for a couple decades. I've worked with an organization, TANAFA, Traditional Native American Farmers Association. And we've done a design course for 20 some years now. And it started out being called permaculture, but they got harassed by people because we didn't do the whole curriculum. It was made for these, these indigenous communities. And half or more of our class for the trees was guys from a local tribal rehab that were from tribes throughout the region. And we just spent the day helping everyone in the course remember what they knew about the living world and why they loved the living world. And they left so happy and even talking about how they saw how it applied to their recovery and how it applied to them returning to their homes and their friends and their habits and everything else. And it was the most remarkable example where just giving them permission to do that and mm -hmm. setting the stage for that and doing some simple movement exercises and, and the like, they could go there. It didn't take forever. It didn't, I think this is one of the illusions that holds us back. If we had to mechanically, physically change the planet, we do not have the time and energy to do it. We don't have the resources. We cannot do it physically. But the living world regenerates in patterns. A logarithmic spiral grows so fast compared to an additive mechanical path. It's why we talk about things spreading virally, that ideas, organisms, all kinds of things spread in this wildfire pattern if we can find the right time and the right place to introduce them. And they are always re-patterns. If you think about it, a virus is nothing but pattern. It's nothing but DNA. That replaces the DNA of the cell that it enters. It's not material. It's entirely pattern. And the living world works through patterns. And for me, permaculture is about observing the patterns and looking for that least change for the greatest effect that will change the underlying patterns. And that's how you change manifestation. Mm -hmm. no, it's not beautiful. about changing manifestation. Because if we're just changing manifestation, all we're doing is solving symptoms. Mm -hmm. And as my partner Bill Reed says, if we figure out some way to get the carbon out of the atmosphere, but we don't change the way we see and think and treat the world, we'll just come up with another planet-killing symptom. The mm -hmm. symptom is not the problem. The underlying patterns are the problem. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, maybe if we do come in towards permaculture, because I think this is so obviously so relevant to permaculture and yeah this this idea that oh my god you know the, the the plant's falling apart we need to just roll this stuff out we need to manifest more dare i say it as well as spirals whatever else you know that that those are the things we need to make go viral is, is, is the yeah. solution swell the planet key line the planet yeah as opposed to this idea that um the way the way life works is is by well the, this living system kind of um inspired approach of of where are the headwaters, where are those intervention points? Surely that nodal intervention point or the acupuncture point is at the level of our orientation, our worldview and so on. And I'm sure you struggle with this too. This Often there's this dichotomy where people say, look, enough with the philosophy, you know, we, we don't, there's not enough time for, for theory, for worldview stuff. We've just got to get out there on the ground and make shit happen, mm -hmm. which of course, you know, the, whereas this, this realization that there is nothing as practical as a good theory that unless the two are, are growing together, we're perpetuating this dichotomy. That's yeah, just such an enormous, enormous issue. And at the same time, it's not to say that the theory is disconnected from practice at all, but the, the, the two are un unfolding together where the point is for the, the whole lot to change. 
rather than to just plow on and try and replicate these technical on the ground solutions in the hope that somehow that's going to magically transform the, the theoretical um, orientation because it's not right. That's what, right. part of what you're saying. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things I want to say about that, Dan. The first one is I often tell people, can you explain to me, can you think of a single masterpiece of art, music, lovemaking that came out of fear? And it's just not what motivates us to do our best work. There's, even if we go back to our organic gardening experience, the chemical farming went, ah, we've got bugs. We'll spray chemicals to kill the bugs. And that we've learned, no, the reason the plant has bugs is because it's stressed out, that we should actually work on the quality of the soil to enable the plants to be healthy so then they're not actually amplifying the sexual smells of their pest insects and calling the insects in to eat them up, right? Which is, in fact, what's going on. So we're simply, as you keep saying, repeating the same pattern that has caused the problems. Oh, we got to roll this stuff out there. It's purely functional. And I would say that it's not about theory. It's about perspective or worldview. Mm. And it's really like, ah, come over here and look at it this way. And we know, right, as I said, if we start from the perspective that we live in a material world and we humans are destructive to the living planet, we're a scourge, we have no choice but to live out the ending of that story. And if we just change to we're here for a reason and our job is not to do stuff, but to figure out what our role is, what our place is, we could do that very quickly. Mm. And that has huge changes. And it's why I'm so struck by these things like, oh, one bowl, one spoon. If that's your basis of all of your thinking, then making a living is not a question, right? And it's why so many people like Wangari Matai, who was able to do huge amounts of reforestation because she got the women to see that if they had trees close to the village, they wouldn't have to walk so far for firewood. It would be more pleasant for them and their children to live. They would have more water. They would have more food. They would have more medicine. And it was that insight that the women had that caused them to be strong and to hold together and to plant trees that the men couldn't bloody well cut down and sell, right? And that they're in the work that Regenesis is based on is often called fourth way work. It comes from this Sufi lineage and through Gurdjieff and John Bennett and others. It's often said, and Carol Sanford repeats this often, it's a school of will. It's not a school of function. It's not a school of being like yoga or meditation, though it works on both of those. It says the most important thing is will. Because we know right now how to reverse climate change. We lack the political will to do it. Unless we know how to build that political will, we don't have a chance. And so the critical point, the least change for the greatest effort, is how do we build that political will? How do we get enough people to see the importance of building swales and planting trees and rotational grazing and harvesting water and local currencies and local exchange and all the various things that we know need to happen. And it largely has to do with fear. Uh, again, my friend and teacher, John Stokes, he learned tracking there in Australia. And he was a teacher at Aboriginal Community College. And some of his students would take him out bush and say, all right, what are you gonna eat? What are you gonna drink? Ah, I thought you graduated summa cum laude. You're not so smart for a teacher, are you? <laughs> and that if you know how to eat and drink and all of those things, there's a lot less fear, right? And then we can think well and clearly. And that's then when we move into some action. And effective action, not just running around you know, key lining plant. <laughs> yep, yep. It's Man. not ours to key line. <laughs>
I'm really glad that you mentioned that lineage of Gurdjieff and Bennett and, and others, because that's, that was one thing I wanted to kind of bring out into the open a little bit, is that, is that the work you're doing with Regenesis and in, in other spheres of your life is, is drawing on these really rich lineages of, of ways of being. And, and one thing I would love to do is see that stuff being made more accessible to people. Because, like, for example, most people in permaculture know I haven't heard of Regenesis, and I think part of it is the reason is that you're, you're not you're, – your target – audience is not permaculture right you're, you're working with with developers and communities and, and and looking to to make this stuff more palatable and accessible but i know you you are working on a book at the moment which presumably will share some of these ideas yeah um, absolutely could, could mind. did i cut you off in the midst of your thought dan no, no 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 i was done okay well you know one of the things that i have been doing over the past several years is going around and doing a day or so with uh in PDCs that other people are teaching. Because one of the things that I have seen is even like the first PDC that I took, it was only a second generation course and already it was to all the bits and pieces. And a lot of the connective tissue had already been lost. And so I've been going around trying to bump it back up and trying to get people to think about, ah, the patterns behind water harvesting are the same patterns in the invisible structures, right? The patterns that we're using in livestock systems are precisely the patterns that apply to human communities and systems and economies. And that if there is a single message in permaculture, it is that everything on this biological planet is a living system and every living system follows the same patterns, whether that has to do with the branching distribution for a greater surface to volume ratio for greater exchange because life is exchange or the pattern of natural succession, ecological succession, you know, where you've got, you can see it in permaculture, right? You got your thorny pioneer, Bill Mollison and God bless him as difficult as he was to deal with. It took a person like that to get it around the world. And then the next layer of us, next generation of us were maybe a little less thorny and maybe a little higher yielding and now we've gotten to generations succeeding generations like you guys that are so impressive to me and other early generations because you're so much better at dealing with people dealing with one another creating organizations and part of it is because you've had resources to build off of right there's a plethora of books there's videos there's work that's been done there's organizations that have been made and that's how ecosystems are meant to evolve right and to develop through succession and we all know that they eventually get to a point of senescence where they start to get bogged down and overly rigid and they need to somehow be disturbed and um i see that happening in permaculture where it's become increasingly rigid and dogmatic and teachers have to be certified and all of these kinds of things that are necessary if we're going to institutionalize something. But just like that artist community in every city that became gentrified out of existence and is now boring as hell, something <laughs> needs to stir it up, get let a little light in the swamp and um, get a little species diversity in there. So it keeps being creative, right? that what, what got thought up 30 years ago um, won't do to just keep repeating that one trick pony, right? Oh, yeah. This is music, music to my ears, you know? Because, yeah, that's... I mean, fr fr frankly, I, yeah, I see a lot of the work I'm doing, particularly with making permaculture stronger, as very much being an attempt to disturb, or sometimes I say lovingly disturb, but, you know, to disturb mm. or perturb some of these patterns because I see stagnation and I see regurgitation of the same ideas decade after decade after decade. And of course that is a sign of, of a dying organism. Mm. And, and then on the flip side, one of the funny things I've noticed is that another sign of an unhealthy organism is, is a weak immune system. And so some of these, some of these disturbances and challenges, sometimes I'm surprised at how easily they kind of enter the membrane of permaculture. Um, mm. And occasionally, it's very occasionally, like I think maybe one or two cases where someone's gotten a bit upset or, or, or you know, there's challenge and there's, there's, there's vigorous, there's feelings being expressed. You know, it's so, it's so delightful because it's like, oh, great, okay, well, there's some, there's mm. some life here. Um, the, both of those, uh, the challenge needs to be coming, but there needs to be some kind of process going on where, where what's inappropriate can be excluded and, and the good stuff can, 
can come on in. What, right. One thing, one thing I wanted to coming back to permaculture. You've mentioned will the importance of of kind of tapping will or I don't know mobilizing will or just the importance of will. Um, and you've talked about potential. Another another word that I've gotten from interacting with you and your colleagues is this idea of essence and um, mm. bringing those to to permaculture. I really feel in you. It would be good to touch on your open letter to permaculture in a little bit, but this idea of growing will in permaculture and realizing, supporting permaculture to, to become self-aware of and then to move towards realizing its potential, which, which grows out of its unique essence. I came across this quote from Peter Senge recently, the idea that a seed, a tree seed doesn't contain the actual resources that become the tree. It doesn't contain the water or the carbon or the minerals or whatever else. What it contains is that DNA, which is not a master plan or a blueprint, but it's a set of rules governing the transformations that enable these resources to be transformed into a tree. So he says, in a sense, a seed is like a portal or a gateway through which the possibility of a living tree kind of flows or, or actualizes. And I suspect you agree that um, one of the reasons we're still associated with and excited about permaculture is that permaculture itself is like is, is like a seed where it has this beautiful essence and this beautiful potential to 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 let things in, in the world flow through and reorganize themselves and, and manifest in, in ways that embrace and honor and support and regenerate life but there's also a flip side of that which is a concern that that potential it's not a done deal whether or not that potential is realized it's a very open question and then i know you wrote an open letter some years back which to me was coming from that place of saying come on like let's not squander this potential and this beautiful legacy from mollison and all these other amazing pioneers and all the rest yeah I agree absolutely with you that the DNA of permaculture that Mollison and Holmgren saw, I think, more than anything else, and then were able to articulate is really a re-seeing how the living world works mm. and seeing that, well, why shouldn't human beings be able to do what they've done for millennia of assembling analog ecosystem that would provide for their needs so they could leave most other things alone. And then I think there was an insight that was along the lines of that, which was, ah, it's one of the, for me, it's one of the big differences. Hey, sorry, Joel, your, your audio, I'll just let you know, your audio's, it's the quality's dropped off a little bit. Something happened there, I think. How about now? That's much better, infinitely better. Okay, yeah. it's where my hands were. Ah. So, so for me, there's a, a, an interesting difference between Mollison's principles and Holmgren's. And David's are fantastic design principles. And I think Mollison's are really aimed at changing how we see the world. Least change for the greatest effect. Yield is limited by our minds. Stacking functions. Um, problem is the solution, right? A lot of them are like disturbances to begin with, Yeah. right? One of the things that I loved about Mollison was his ability to tell stories and describe things in a way that I could see the whole system functioning, whether it was the way the salmon function and in the entire Pacific Rim and those ecosystems and those cultures and the relationship to the bears and the eagles and the coyotes and fertilizing the upstream trees and the human beings and their relationship to that and even seeing it in that coastal art of where the bear's face is in the salmon's eye and the, the salmon is in the tree and the tree is a river, that they are inseparable. Hmm. And that's why for me it's so frustrating for us to not be aiming toward that potential is that as simply as I could say it permaculture is a pattern-based approach for finding the small changes that create systemic transformation and we can do that in our gardens we can do that in our communities and we can do it in any other living system regardless of its scale and for me going out in the forest, going out on the water, going out in the prairies or in my gardens, that's the laboratory where I can learn physically how living systems function. Just like we could see all the patterns in water, we can't see them in the wind, except when the clouds show it to us. That manifest living reality is how we learn about all these other living systems and how they function and how to change them, how to shift them and transform them. 
And so one of the things that maybe it wasn't clear enough to be articulated well is that, yeah, your gardens are there so you can learn and you could feed yourselves and your family and have water and shelter and energy and all those things. But don't stop there. Don't stop there. That for us to realize the potential of permaculture, we need to take what we've learned and shift these large systems because without shifting those large systems, our lovely gardens are not going to last very long. And so it's, it's what Bateson repeatedly talked about as a meta pattern. Not just the pattern we're seeing, but what's the pattern behind water harvesting? What's the pattern behind local economies? What's the pattern behind inoculations? So there's, a, there's this quote I love. There's a pattern that we use in Regenesis that we call the law of three. It comes to us from Gurdjieff, and Bennett talks about it, where it's an act for something new to come into creation. For creation to occur, there must be three forces present. We spend most of our lives in a two-force world, this side, that side, battling back and forth, and you can see that more and more in our so-called political dialogue. Pro-gun, anti-gun, pro-abortion, anti-abortion, you know, whatever it is, and that unless we appreciate the value of both sides, why are people for abortion? Why are people against abortion? Why are people pro-mining? Why are people against mining? What is it? We're fighting over techniques instead of what we think those techniques will give us. And if we can understand what the value is behind both sides, we can use both forces to move to a new level, right? It's what nature does. When the chick runs out of room in her egg, she doesn't add on or go shopping. She busts out and lets her parents feed her. And when she outgrows her parents' ability to feed her, she fledges and she flies into a new reality. Nature solves her problems by moving into a new reality, a new level of reality. And that's what human beings have done over and over. And you referred to this earlier, right? I've activating force. I've got all this milk. I want to feed my family. Restraining force. Ah, it's going to spoil. And now we ultra pasteurize it and package it and refrigerate it so it won't spoil. Instead of saying, what is the value of bacteria growing in milk? Oh, we could make yogurt. We could make camembert. We could make all these things that are much more palatable, longer lasting, and actually more nutritious. Bread is exactly the same way. We turn this paste of flour into baguette, right? Or one of my favorites is the igloo, right? I want to live. It's really cold here. We're going to die. <laughs> oh, I know. We'll make a house out of snow and ice that will only function when it's freezing cold. Mm -hmm. And that will shelter us from the cold. Mm -hmm. And this is the creativity of human beings that has gotten us as far as we have gotten. And the problem is instead of valuing those restraining forces and using them as part of what enables us to be creative, we've... We'll make a machine for that. 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 I'm too hot. I'm too cold. I'm bored. I want to get somewhere. We'll make a machine for that. And so uh, I want to share one more quote. And this is from a uh, pre-Socratic philosopher named Heraclitus, who we best know as having said, can't step in the same river twice. And he said, they do not see how pulling apart is pulling together as in the backbent tension of the bow and the lyre. That it's not that one side of the bow is good and one side is bad. It's not that they should cooperate. It's not that they should compromise. Mm -hmm. Only if they pull against each other can you make that arrow fly. Mm -hmm. Only if the neck of your guitar pulls against the body can you tune it up. And that's what human beings have always been excellent at and what my understanding of permaculture is about. It's not about judging the wind is good or the wind is bad. It's about how do we harvest the wind, right? One of David's principles. How do we get a harvest out of 
the acidic soils here? How do we get a harvest out of the pest insects? How do we get a, right? How do we be very Zen and say, the wind does this, the sun does this, mm -hmm. and be creative to see, okay, how do we make more life out of using all the forces at our disposal, including corporatization, industrialization, the spread of toxins in the environment, carbon in the environment and climate change, instead of judging them and freaking out about them, how about we take a moment and see what is the potential of them? I have a friend who said, what if we just went to all the oil companies and said, thank you. Thank you for the cushy life I've had. Thank you for enabling me to travel to wonderful places all around the world that my grandparents couldn't imagine. Thank you for all of these things. Thank you, thank you. Now let's figure something else out. <laughs> Instead of, you guys are the bloody devil and you should all be killed, right? Instead of like, we've been making use and enjoying all the great gifts that petrochemicals have given us. Let's take a moment and be grateful for that and then think about, okay, now that we're here, what are we going to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I, I laugh at that one, that, that chronic lack of, of gratitude. At, or, you know, and then we're, we're sitting on, the, on a leaf on a, on a tree and saying the tree is, is, um, is bad. But yeah, I, what, as you're talking, there's a, there's a few um, quotes I hear in design circles. One's from quite a well-known design theorist, and it is, it is, all design is compromise. And just a few days ago, I was, <laughs> I was, I was talking with some people about design, and, and one of them said, well, every engineer knows all good designers is nothing but a series of trade-offs. And, you know, when I hear that, I, I want to say, maybe as an absolute last resort, yeah, but this idea of acknowledge the forces at play in the situation. And before you say, oh, well, the best we can hope for is a compromise, which means no one gets what they want. Everyone has to take less than what an ideal solution, which is nothing to do with realizing potential. Hmm. What's possible here in terms of, yeah, like letting the egg crack and, and listening to these tensions and these conflicts and these blockages and these pinch points, and, and rather than seeing them as bad things to try and eradicate, seeing them as indicators of the fact the system's ready to metamorphize and change, you know? Oh. And, and then when you switch into that frame, that magic that I'm, I know you've experienced, you experience all the time in your work, and I'm just starting to get a taste for, there's no turning back once for me once I've tasted it, which is, wow, when you, when you flip that frame, suddenly these opportunities where, yeah, the, the system can jump to another level and it, you move it from compromise to accommodating and suddenly things are shifted now and everything's been listened to. I'm not trying, I'm not tr trying to say it's... It's always like that and life's a fairy tale from then on, but I've just really appreciated that as a really clear example of, oh, you shift your framing or your perspective and things that previously didn't happen start happening and they're good things and they're, they're, they're things more consistent with life. Yeah, I think that there's in every tradition many things for us to learn from our ancestors and there's a reason why the braid and spinning and weaving are powerful metaphors in every culture. And every fabric is coherent and held together by the tensions between the fibers. Mm -hmm. And the moment the fibers of my shirt start to compromise or cooperate, my fabric, the fabric of my shirt unravels. And it's true of every fabric. It doesn't mean that we should battle to the death. It means that when the lion lies down with the lamb, it's not because the lion stops eating the lambs and the sheep overgraze the watershed. It's because we've realized that the lion is the good shepherd, that the lion is loving the sheep. Like I love a good tomato and is appreciating the sheep and making the sheep better and faster and stronger and smarter. And it's that change where, ah, oh, the predator is the good shepherd. Right? which we know from many examples, that story from the Yellowstone reintroduction of the wolves, reshaping the landscape and healing the watersheds and healing the stream channels. And I think that our job is to be creative enough to hang out long enough in the dynamic tension of cognitive dissonance to enable ourselves to be creative, to let a new thought come in that we hadn't had before because the thoughts we've had before are not working and that we know from all of our ancestors that we're capable of incredible creativity and our human and non-human ancestors. 
and I'm going to have to run, Dan. Mm. Oh, good. So I hope that you've gotten enough. Oh, more than enough. To put something together. Yeah. And I thank you very much. Thank you, Joel. You're a great inspiration. It's been a pleasure. And I'd love to you know, tear up a future chat to talk about some of the you know, practical on the ground stuff. I'd love that. Great. Well, well blessings on you and your family. You too, Joel. And um, well. take care. Till soon. Thanks so much. See ya. Wow, what a fantastic conversation. I'm sure you found that as rich as I did. So much amazing wisdom and insight from um, all that Joel was so kind to, to take the time to share with, with, with me and us. If you want to find out more about Joel's work, a couple of great places to start are his own, his, firstly his own personal website, patternmind.org. Uh, and secondly, we talked about, we mentioned Regenesis Group a few times. We can find at regenesisgroup.com. Uh, as always, you can track down more conversations of this ilk at makingpermaculturestronger.net where a comment um, is always very welcome or, or, or send through a message. Uh, really, really happy to hear any feedback, any requests for, for future uh, interviewees and whatnot. Meantime, thanks so much for listening. Making Permaculture Stronger has got plenty more of this kind of thing in the pipeline. Thanks for your support and uh, yeah, get out there and keep on doing the great work you're doing.